Well, we are less than a week away from Hanukkah. And I wanted to talk about Hanukkah. It's very appropriate, obviously. But Hanukkah teaches us many, many lessons, of which we will see. But one of the most important things that Hanukkah shows us is that everything is orchestrated by the Rebbe Shalom. And nothing happens by accident. That's the first idea. The second idea is why do these type of events happen? And the answer to that is because we have to fulfill, we mean the Jewish people, have accepted a spiritual task. And that basically is to bring the Rabbi Shalom back to the Bria. But what it really is is something which is in certain sense more general. And what that is is that it's not only that the Bonisha wants to come back, you see, but what it really is is that there are two realities, really. One which is revealed, which is ours, and one which is concealed, which is the reality of an entire spiritual dimension. <clears throat> and we don't realize that. And our job is to reassert to bring it back. That's the job of the Jew. And that concept is called, we, we, you know, which we know, is called Tikkun. <clears throat> because the world is in a very uh, um, defective state. And that is that <clears throat> we only perceive a certain reality, but it's a very surface and superficial reality. And the job really is is to uncover the real reality, which is spiritual. And, of course, that takes place in the Messianic era. In fact, that's what the Messianic era really is. It is this world that will remain physical, which is interesting, but will be uh, governed by the spiritual reality. So it's interesting that in this physical world, God will actually reveal the spiritual reality. That's really what the essential idea is of the Messianic era. In other words, a reality which is physical. However, it will be governed by, and obviously uh, it will be not only governed by, but that reality will be revealed, is a spiritual reality. And that is called the mixture. And then slowly the physical world turns into a complete spiritual reality. So if you want to look at it in a certain way, you have the world itself, Oilam Hazer, which is a Oilam Hashofer, which I mentioned once, which is, means the lower world, which is completely physical. And then in the Messianic era, the spiritual reality, which right now is concealed, becomes revealed and it governs this, the physical reality and that is the messianic era and then the physical reality which is governed by the spiritual reality which I said is the messianic era that all of it turns into the spiritual reality where there's no physical reality left 
You see? So that's the uh, third phase. First being all physical, second being physical governed by spiritual, and then the third reality is the whole physical world turns into the spiritual. And then there's the fourth reality, which is Oilam Habo, which is a reality of which we have no concept of, nor do the Malochim, nor do the angels. Because it's not spiritual, really. I mean, it is spiritual in a sense that it's not physical. So we would say, well, it's spiritual. But the truth is that the future world is vastly distant from the spiritual reality, you see. So that's really what the, what's called the evolution of the, of the uh, uh, realities in that sense, you see. Uh, now, that's the job of the Jew, is to facilitate or to make sure that all this happens. But in a certain sense, we're very lucky that we don't have to do all the realities. Our work, which is doing the mitzvahs uh, and so on, doing tshuva or the exiles, the suffering, we only have to, to turn this physical world, right, and allow it to be governed by the spiritual. That's all we have to do, is to get the spiritual reality, right, back into the physical, where it governs the physical. And like I say, our job is to usher in the messianic reality, uh, that that's what it is. However, from that, in the messianic era, it automatically turns into the next and into the next. That's no longer our job. So the critical concept here is the, what, at what point of time does God decide to transition the physical into a spiritual, where, I should say into a physical which is governed by a spiritual. And that is the redemption itself. So that is the basic job of the Jew in a very brief description. Now, as such, the Jews are commanded to do what? They are commanded to move it along, the tikkun process, until you have the what's called the tikkun akloli, the total rectification of creation, which, as far as we're concerned, is the messianic era. That's what we do. So we have to bring this along, you see. And the very important part of the Messianic era is the exposure of a spiritual reality which we've never seen before. That's called the Orishim, the first light, which I will talk about. That is called the Orhagonas, the concealed light, light being a metaphor for reality, right? Or it's called the Omashiach. Messianic light. They're all the same terms, you see. And that's really what we have to do. It's a a very good bird's eye view, as they say, of the task of the Jew and its relationship to what happens to this world. In any case, that's what the Jew does. Now, I I mentioned briefly, but what, what is the origin? How do we understand the light of the Messianic era. And the answer to that is the term that the Torah uses. Because it says, and there was evening and morning 
Yom Echod, one day. Okay? Now, it, it, obviously there's a question, because one day is a uh, cardinal number. That's what it is called. It should have said Yom Rishon, because on every other day, it says Yom Shani, Yom Shlishi, the second day, third day, and so on. And those are called ordinal numbers, because they indicate order. One, first, second, third. So why does it say one day? It should have said Yom Rishon, the first day. <clears throat> anyway, Rashi deals with that problem. Uh, and his answer is that it says Yom Echod, the day of one. Because you can read it Yom Shel Echod, the day of one. Because what the Torah points out is on that day, the first day, there was not, no other living entities at all besides God. And therefore it says Yom Echod, the day of one. But if you think about it, you can, we can further understand it in this way. Yom Echod means that what happens if you were on the first day? What would, that, what would you see? What you would see is really only God. In other words, the connection that God as the creator has with the entire creation, you would see that connection. And you would see that everything emanates from God himself, both the spiritual universe and the physical universe and so on. So even though you would see many, many things, ultimately what you'd see is that there's really only one thing, and that one thing is called God, because he creates everything. So that perception, where you see the connection between God and his creation, that's the Yom Echod, the day of one, you see. And that's the messianic light. And I've explained it. That is when the spiritual now is revealed. And you see how it governs, right, the physical. And that's the messianic era. So that's what Yom Echod means. The messianic light, the day of one, where the connection or the relationship that God has with everything is revealed you see now <clears throat> we also know that this concept of Yemechot which is the messianic light is the weapons of the Mashiach ben Yosef and I had said this uh, I don't know about two or three shurim ago that is called the Kani Re'em and I mentioned the drosha in the end of the Torah where it says uh, when, you, when Moshe Rabbeinu is blessing Yosef so he says that the firstborn of his ox, the firstborn of his ox, means beauty is his. You see, that this ox is beautiful. You see. And in what way? The Kani Re'em Karnov. And the horns of this ox is the horns of a Re'em, some type of an animal that does not exist anymore. And apparently the horns of the Re'em, Chodoloi, is beautiful to look at. You know, sometimes you look at some animals, you know, some uh, moose or deers. They have magnificent antlers or sheep, how they twist and turn in beautiful symmetry. In any case, the horns of this ox is not the horns of an ox, but rather the horns of a Re'em. What about them? Ubehem, and with them, says in the Torah, Amim Yenagach, he will go the nations. So you immediately see 
that the purpose of these horns is that they are weapons. And with these weapons, right, he will go to the nations. Now, this obviously, you know, the firstborn of, uh, of, his, uh, of his ox uh, obviously uh, does not refer, uh, you know, to an ox. It's a metaphor. It refers to the Mashiach ben Yosef because he's the firstborn of the tribe of Yosef. And his horns are magnificent. Obviously, the Mashiach ben Yosef does not have horns, but the horns are a metaphor. To what? Because they emanate from the head, you see. And they are used as weapons. Therefore, what that Pasuk is telling us, which I had mentioned, is that the horns of the Mashiach ben Yosef, or rather, right, those things that emanate from his head, which is what? Which is incredible wisdom, right? This wisdom will be so awesome that it will gore the nations. They will be stunned at this chokhmah, this wisdom, you see. And it says, Hodoloi, beauty is it. In other words, this wisdom is magnificent to watch. And I once mentioned what the concept of uh, beauty is, and that it is an integration or a harmonious blending of all the elements of a thing into one. You see, it's like looking at a painting. You know, painting is beautiful. means that all the different elements of the picture, you know, the, uh, the colors, the shades, and the shape, and so on, it all blends into a picture. They all unite to express a picture. That's called beauty. And everything has its own way of expressing beauty, and so on. Like a composition, you know, music composition. You have hundreds of notes, but they all blend together to make a beautiful, or rather a harmonious blend of notes, a beautiful melody, melody and so on. In any case, this is the weapons of the Mashiach ben Yosef. It's chokhmah. It's wisdom, you see. You know, he doesn't come with guns or assault weapons. He comes with this incredible wisdom. And the wisdom is not merely wisdom. It is prophetic wisdom. It is wisdom that emanates from prophecy. You see, it's the same concept as Moshe Rabbeinu, right, on Mount Sinai when he was receiving the Torah. You see, Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah in 40 days. And the, and the Chazal tell us that what he received was every single thing that anybody would ever learn in Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu knew. You see. So what that means is that he had incredible amount of knowledge, wisdom, but it was all prophetically inspired or given to him. This is the same thing with Mashiach ben Yosef. So Mashiach ben Yosef will be projecting or declaring a wisdom which is prophetic in a sense that it explains everything. You see, could you imagine that person among us? what it will look like in the Messianic era. So this is the weapons of the Mashiach ben Yosef, and this is what we will expect in the Messianic era. Because what it is, is a revelation of what? Of another reality. And that is the essence of the Messianic era, the revelation of another reality. Therefore, in that reality, everything will uh, be beneficial. There will be no longer wars. 
because everybody will know the truth, and uh, you know you can't hide anymore, and all evil will be shut off, completely closed. You know any kind of false doctrines will of course be annihilated, and so on. And therefore, the entire world changes, right? Because of this unbelievable prophetic wisdom. And this is the messianic light. Now, <clears throat> so that's an important idea. Now, <clears throat> Klai Yisrael is given the Torah, isn't it? So what the Jews have to do, and this is part of the Tikkun, is they have to accept the Torah. They have to receive and accept it. But they have to accept it in a way which is uh, what's called um, superlative acceptance. And that's what they did. They said, Nasa Vinishma. You see, we will do, Nasa, we will do Vinishma, and then we will understand. So the fact that they were willing to accept oh, the entire Torah without understanding it first, instead it was given to them, and they accepted it, and embraced it, that was a superior Kabbalah. And they were rewarded with it without going into the, the Medrash and so on. Uh, now, but what did they accept, really? Well, they certainly accepted the written Torah, you see. But there was problems. They did not accept the oral law, which I'm not going to go into. But one of the things that they also did not really accept what's called the third aspect of the Torah, which is the mystical aspect of the Torah, you see, which is the ultimate understanding that all of the Torah, really, what underlies all of it is the messianic light. You see, the messianic light is not the, uh, is not the Torah of Mashiach. It is the Torah of God, which the Mashiach reveals, you see. So, it was the task of the Jews to accept everything. But what happened, when you think about that, you see, what happened was, is that Moshe Rabbeinu was delayed in coming down. Everybody got frightened, right? Everybody got frightened. And as a result of that, they decided to build a golden calf. Now that calf that they built is a violation or a denial or a contradiction to the messianic light. Because how can you build anything that represents God? I mean, even if they, did they really think it was a God, certainly they wanted to, to, something to represent God. <clears throat> but if you understand the messianic light, there is nothing but God, right? You can't represent anything you, can't, you cannot take a physical object and represent it uh, and represent God. Of course not. You see, so the fact that they built the golden calf, the Cheto Egel, right, is a denial or a rejection of the ovation of the messianic light. And therefore, what that did, which is really amazing, it created a tremendous pagam defect in the Kabbalah Satura. You see, this was a big problem. Yeah, they accepted the, the uh, written Torah, and uh, whatever they accepted, not really, that was the problem, which we, you can see later on, 
They didn't really accept the oral law, but they certainly did not accept the Messianic Torah, which is the underlying meaning explanation of the written and the oral law because of the golden calf. Therefore, they had, they, they had uh, performed a tremendous pagam or defect in the acceptance of the Torah. Now, that was not good, you see. So, therefore, there's a major problem. In order for the tikkun process to ensue, the Jews have to accept all of the Torah, and they have to accept it on a superior level. But they rejected, because of the golden calf, the concept of the messianic light, you see, uh, by allowing something to represent God. In any case, therefore that would require an entire historical event to repair. And what we begin to understand is when that many times the Jewish nation has to go through a historical event to repair a spiritual necessity that they should have accomplished. That's why. So the first event, you see, so the Matan Torah was an event that they had to accept the Torah, all parts of the Torah. But what happened was, like I say, they didn't. So therefore they became, there arose a tremendous spiritual necessity, which is what? Which is to accept the Torah of the Mashiach. In other words, to perform a tikkun, which is a rectification of that defect. <clears throat> you see. So therefore, as a result of the necessity to repair the defect in that spiritual uh, uh, task, God would then have to do what? He would have to create a historical event, you see, and to repair it, the Jews would be again tested in terms of the messianic light, and they would pass, and that would correct that spiritual necessity. This is a very important concept. What I'm telling you is the model of many of the events that happen to the Jewish people. In other words, there's a primary event in which the Jews have to um, be successful in carrying out a spiritual necessity, and that was Matan Torah. The Torah was given to the Jews, and therefore the Jews would have to accept the Torah in a superior way, right? And that then, and through that event, Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, they would have achieved that spiritual task. <clears throat> but if the Jews failed in that, then God would have to create what's called a secondary historical event, which is a secondary tikkun event that the Jews would have to go through again in order to rectify that spiritual defect. So therefore, it's a very important concept. This is the model of all the Yom I am now illustrating it with Hanukkah, you see. So that's what we are now looking at. We have identified, right, the spiritual event, you see, uh, the initial one, which is Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, 
and the fact that there now becomes a need to rectify the Cheto Ego, or to rectify, right, the acceptance of the Messianic light. That's what they would have to do. Now, one of the things that it says is very important, you see, and that is that um, it says that Aaron Akoyin, and this is in Baha'u it says Aaron Akoyin, God commanded or he allowed each of the Nesim, the princes of each of the tribes, to offer a korban, you know, as part of the Hanukkah Sabayas, the uh, Mishkan, as part of the dedication to the Mishkan. <clears throat> but Aaron Akoyin was not one of them. <coughs> Even though Aaron Akoyin is really what? Is the head of the Kohanim. But he was not asked to bring a korban as part of that dedication. And therefore, he was tremendous, the Avenger uh, says, Chazal, that he had tremendous chalisho. That he was going to faint. Why? Because he felt that the reason why God doesn't want to allow him to bring a korban is because, if you remember, he was instrumental in the Chet They all came running to him, and they told him, make us a golden calf. And he showed him how to do it, you know, whatever. And uh, a golden calf was made, right? And the one who made it for Christville was Aaron. So Aaron felt that God did not forgive him for the chetu ego, for the sin of the golden calf. And therefore we had what's called tremendous chalisho, a tremendous uh, disappointment and despair, sadness, depression over that fact. So what happened is, is that God appeared to him, you see. And he told Aaron, nope, what I want you to do is to light the menorah. And this isn't Pasha's Baloischa, you know. You have to light the menorah, you see. And God told him that this menorah will be for all time. What does that mean? In other words, <clears throat> what God was saying is that, on the contrary, what I'm doing for you is greater than what I did to the Nesim. They bring Korbonus, but eventually the Beis Hamikdash will be destroyed. However, your lighting the menorah will continue till the end of time. That's what God told Aaron. So therefore, Aaron, his spirits were obviously incredibly lifted. So that's a very important idea. You see, now, the Ramban, one of the major commentaries on the Torah, asks, he says, wait a minute, when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, so was the idea or the avoider or the procedure of writing the menorah, because the menorah is in the Beis HaMikdash. So what does it mean that God is saying to Aaron that your lighting of the menorah will proceed throughout all the generations? So the Ramban says a very important concept, reveals that what God was saying to Aaron is that it's true. You are responsible, you see, for the Cheto Ego. But I want to tell you something. The real despair of Aaron isn't that the Jews brought the Cheto Ego. The real problem that Aaron faced was that at Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, that first 
Torah or those first luchas was the Or Mashiach. And had the Jews accepted all of the Torah, you see, then Moshe Rabbeinu would have been Mashiach ben Yosef. So in effect, it's not merely, right, that they made a golden calf, which is a sin in and of itself. But the problem was, is that because of Aaron's contribution to allowing them, to helping them build a golden calf, he removed or he blocked the entire possibility of the Mashiach coming, which would have been Moshe Rabbeinu. Could you imagine if you did some type of a sin and all of a sudden God appears to you and says, by the way, the Mashiach would have come and guess who stopped it? You did with this Avera. Could you imagine how you would have felt? Well, that's what Aaron felt. So the despair that Aaron had wasn't only because he got Israel to sin by worshipping this calf. The problem was is that stopped the process of the Mashiach coming, and that was the first tablets that Moshe Rabbeinu would have been, Mashiach ben Yosef. So when God says to him, don't worry, you know, you will light the candles till the end of time. So what the Ramban is saying is, wait a minute, we know that when the Beis Amikdash was destroyed, then so was lighting the candle, obviously. So then what did the Rabban Shalom mean? So he says the following, Hanukkah, that's what it is. Where God says to Aaron, I realized that you are in utter despair because you stopped the Mashiach from coming. I will give your descendants, right, the wherewithal, the opportunity to bring a tikkun, a rectification to that defect that the Jews did of which you contributed. So therefore, I'm allowing you to atone. Not only will I will forgive you for what you did, but your descendants are the ones that will actually rectify, correct, the defect in the rejection of the messianic light. Therefore, obviously, Aaron was incredibly raised in his spirit, you see. Now, where do we see that? So the Ramban says, that's Hanukkah. Hanukkah is an event of, whose purpose is to rectify the rejection of the messianic light. Now we begin to understand something which is very profound, you see. So we now understand the rule that I told you, that an event can happen, right? It's called a secondary tikkun event, where the event itself will repair a damage done in the original event, which should have fulfilled a spiritual necessity. So Hanukkah, you see, is now going to be an event that will repair the damage done by the sin of the golden calf, which was an ultimate rejection of the messianic light. And this, then, is a very important idea, because we now have figured out what the underlying secret is of Hanukkah. In other words, most people make a tremendous mistake because most people have no idea of the underlying ideas of Torah. They think, well, we know the story of Hanukkah, right? That Alexander conquered the entire world, which was astounding. 
And then he died at 33 years old. Imagine that, conquering the entire world. The guy dies at 33. In any case, he dies. So his four major generals each took a part of the empire. And there was a person who was Antiochus, Epiphanes. He was a general, and he took over the Middle East, including Judea. So you had Syria, you had Judea, uh, and Egypt, and so on. So he took that over. But Alexander's purpose, or his main thrust, was called Hellenism. In other words, to bring the world up to a modern age. Hellenism, the Greeks were very modern in that sense, you see. So therefore, what they wanted, right, is that the whole world should become Greek. Hellenism, you see. So, but the Jews, of course, did not want that. So, Yerichelin Koingodl, or Yensoi Matasur Koingodl, and so on, he fought them with his sons, and they were able to vanquish the Greeks. So, therefore, what most people realize, or they think, uh, or, or they think about uh, Hanukkah, is that essentially it's a war that restored freedom and liberty to live the way you want to live with your ideas. That's the way they look at it. But what I'm saying is something completely different, you see. And what is that? And that is that the reason why Hanukkah happened is to restore or to repair the rejection of the messianic light. And this is what the Ramban is alluding to. Now, how does it work? Okay? It works like this. In the beginning of the Torah, it says what? It says, And the earth was unformed, right, and void, empty. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And our rabbis, our chazal, tell us that these four expressions, soyu, unformed, voyu, void or empty, darkness and the face of the deep, they all refer to the four exiles that the Jews would go into, which is Babylon, it is Persia, right? It's Greece, and it is Rome. These are the four nations, empires, that will subjugate the Jews. You see? <clears throat> now, what is interesting, like I said, each one of these nations has their own peculiar characteristic. But what's interesting is, which of these terms refer to Greece? <clears throat> well, soyu refers to Babylon. Voyu, soyu is unformed. Voyu is um, emptiness. It refers to Persia, Medea. And Choshech refers to Greece. And Tahoim, the great abyss, or on the sea, refers to Rome. Now what is amazing is, of all the nations of the antiquity, the Greeks are the most enlightened. I mean, scientists consider, or historians consider Greece, or Alexander, as the one who was the major impetus to bring modernity of civilization to the world because the Greeks were way ahead of most other people. You know, most other people were primitive. You know, the Greeks were into philosophy, logic, science, and so on. I mean, Greeks had a tremendous amount of scholars. We know them, you know, as, you know, there was uh, 
Socrates, there's Plato, there's Aristotle, right? All these people are, are tremendously modern thinkers. They initiated all the thinking of the modern era that is now part of the entire civilization. So how could the Torah call him Choshech, darkness? That's an amazing term, that the Torah calls Greece darkness. And the answer is because Greece is dark relative to something else. Because it says that the earth was, like I say, unformed and void, and darkness on the face of the deep. And then all of a sudden God said, and God said, let there be light. By he or, and there was light. So relative to the light, Chishich or Greece is referred to as darkness. <clears throat> you see, <clears throat> but what is that light? That all when God said, "Let there be light," I told you, it's the Yom Echad, the day of one. So that light that God created is the messianic light, because the universe or all creation was created first with the perception that everything was revealed. You realize the connection that God has with everything, and that is He is creator. Everything emanates. On the second day, it was concealed. You see? That's the Havdolo, the separation. But on the first day, it was apparent to anybody that was there that everything emanates from God, and it all emerges from God. Ah, so therefore, that's when it says, Vahiyor, and there was light. The light of the Yom Echad, which I explain. But Greece is darkness. Not that it's primitive, but it has an opposite philosophy. You see, the opposite philosophy that what runs the physical world is not the messianic light. It's not a spiritual universe. You see, it's not God in that sense. It is the world itself. Science, logic, philosophy. In other words, the secrets that govern the world is contained within the world. You see, you really have to think about it and discover the laws of science. The Greeks held that all of this is really physical. Nature is physical, you see, and that the human mind can comprehend all of it because it's physical. There's no need for a spiritual entity as a resolution or an answer to what governs the world. <clears throat> so their view is the exact opposite. You see, it's Chochmah, right? But it's the exact opposite of Judaism's view, which is that the world is really governed by a spiritual entity, entities, and it's certainly governed by God. You see? So that's the darkness of Greece. It's dark compared to the light, which God said, let there be light. And that light is the messianic light of the Yom Echad, the day of one. And the Greeks held, and that's why the Torah calls them dark, the exact opposite. You see? And that is what? Is that the world is not governed by God or spiritual forces. It is governed by natural law. And that's the whole concept of science and so on. That's what the Greeks held. So if you want, you could look at the fact that the Greeks held an anti-Messianic light. That's what they were, you see. Now, this is all important 
Because God said, I'm going to create an event that will bring you to this nation. They will subjugate you with their anti-Messiah, Messianic light thesis. So what did God do? And we understand why. Because they would have to go through this as a test to see if they will reject Greek culture in order to repair the damage done by the rejection originally because of the golden calf. You see. So therefore God allows a, a young guy, Alexander of Macedon, right? Incredible. What does he do? He goes, he conquers all the nations, all the way up to India. You know how far that is? I mean, it's one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. You see? So God gave him incredible Hatzlochah. Why? And his, his teacher was Aristotle. Uh, you see? Because God wanted him to bring, uh, there are many reasons, but one of them is besides modernity to civilization. But he also wanted Greece to influence the culture and the civilization of Judea. Then once Alexander did that, he dies. Imagine he's 33 years old and he has uh, conquered the entire world. There are people walking around at 33, they don't even know what to do with their lives. And Alexander has already conquered the entire known world. In any case, what happened is Judea, which is Israel, right, is all of a sudden exposed to incredible Hellenistic ideas, which is contrary to the ideas of the Messianic light, you see. And now is the test situation. Will the Jews succumb to this way of thinking, you see, and therefore they would have failed to repair the Messianic light, which they should have accepted 800 years before, or no, they will succeed, they will fight with the Greeks, throw them out, which will automatically mean that they, they will have been moise nefesh, which means the sacrifice self, to accept the messianic light, that nature is not physical. What governs the world is spiritual. It is God. That's the real nature of nature, if you want to use that kind of expression, and so on. So this is what happened. So all of a sudden, the Greeks take over Judea, and they try to, of course, you know, uh, compel the Jews to worship, you know, to do whatever they do, to really modernize them. Uh, so all of a sudden, of course, you have the uh, uh, Matsuo and Coin uh, Godel and so on, you know. You have all of a sudden all these people uh, fighting the Greeks. And lo and behold, they win. They actually won. But the significance of that is that they rejected, you see, they rejected the uh, entire thesis or the Chochmah of Greece. You can believe in science, but that's not the ultimate meaning or the ultimate principle of reality. It is Ruchnius. It is spiritual. It is God, you see. So in that sense, so they repaired the damage that was done. That's what happened in, in Greece, you see. 
Now, <clears throat> what therefore is the the upshot of all this? You see, <clears throat> now the problem is that the Jews did not really realize what they had done. They fought a battle, and by the way, there were ten thousand Jews, and they were fighting the Greeks that had an army of 125,000 battle-hardened soldiers. You see, that's what they did. So that itself, that victory, right, it was a war, and that victory was a mess. It's an incredible miracle, you know. 10,000 soldiers cannot win over 110, 120,000 soldiers like I say, that all that have experienced so many wars, but it happened. So when you think about it, <clears throat> they had succeeded in repairing the damage. But like I say, they didn't know the spiritual significance of the repair. Even they knew they won a war and there was a nest, you see? But they didn't know what. So God said, I have to send them a message. I have to tell them what the spiritual significance of this war is, you see, of the Jews over the Greeks. How am I going to do that? So God decided that I'm going to use the very vessel in the Beis Hamikdash that reflects or represents the Orishan, the hidden light, the messianic light, and I will allow that to burn, indicating that the uh, that the uh, pagam, the defect of not accepting this, has been removed. So therefore the messianic light now shines again. So God, therefore, allowed the menorah, you see. Now we know that they used to get the oil to light the menorah, which is the holies in the Beis HaMikdash. They used to go to the north, and it took four days to get there, four days to get back. So that's eight days, you see. So what happened was, is that they lit the first night, right? And that was it. They didn't expect it's going to be more than that, you see. And all of a sudden, it burned for eight nights, which obviously is a revealed miracle. And then the Jews realized, wait a minute. We are now witnessing a miracle in the very vessel that's the entire Chochmah, wisdom of the messianic light that must and that must indicate that we have repaired the damage that was done in the original acceptance of Martin Torah the sin of the golden calf so actually that was the message that was why the candles the candelabra the menorah burnt for eight days which was miraculous you see, and that answers many questions. In fact, there are many questions to ask about Hanukkah. Because the real message of Hanukkah is what? Is the war and the victory of the war. What does the menorah have to do with this? It's true that the menorah, there was a miracle in the menorah, that instead of burning for one day, it burned for eight. That is true. But that's not the essential idea or the essential teaching of Hanukkah. It is the victory of the Jews over the Greeks, which is, like I said, 10,000 Jews against 120, 125,000 Greeks. What a miracle. So what does the menorah have to do with this? 
even if there was a miracle in the menorah. And not only that, we know that the essential activity of the Jew in Hanukkah is that, is lighting the menorah. And now you see what the answer is. Because the menorah reflects that the defect against the messianic light by the Jewish people was removed. And that is the spiritual achievement of the Jews. You see, that's why the menorah is the message of the war against the Greeks. Besides the miracle itself, of course, of the war, the fact that they won. But the spiritual rectification of the defect is the messianic light, is the Omashiach, you see. And that's why the miracle happened, where God is telling the Jews, by the way, you have rectified that defect. So, therefore, the menorah becomes the essential action or the essential mitzvah of Hanukkah. You see how it beautifully understands now why Hanukkah is symbolized. The major mitzvah is the menorah because that is exactly what happened, you see. Therefore, we have that. The fact that uh, it symbolizes it, that is the uh, mitzvah of the menorah. And also, when you think about it, if you asked a Greek general, do you think that the Jews who have 10,000 soldiers can overcome the Greeks that have overwhelming 20,000 soldiers? He would have said, of course not. Um, because military strategy is what wins wars, right? And military uh, you know, tactics and so on. And how in the world can 10,000 people win over 120,000? And he would be right. But what the, according to his way of thinking, because the world runs on physicality, on physical rules, but the Jews said, you're wrong. What determines historical events is not science or nature. It is God. And if God wants, he can easily have 10,000 people win over 120,000. So it comes out, it's a meter connected meter, a measure for measure. The Jews believed in the messianic light, therefore they were rewarded in observing the message of the messianic light. And that is, it's not nature, it is God that determines the historical event. You see the beautiful poetry, sort of, why the Jews deserved it. And besides that, if you had walked over to a, a Greek general and said, you know, the Jews are now going to light their candelabra, their menorah, in the temple, the Besamikdash, but they only have one day's supply of oil. You see? You think that's going to burn more than one day? So the general would laugh and say, uh, whatever, the, the Greek general would laugh and say, of course not. One day's oil only burns for one day. That's science, right? But the Jews said no. Because the messianic light doesn't say, or rather, the messianic light determines the length of time that oil can burn. Combustion, even though it looks physical, is determined by the spiritual law that governs it. And according to the, that messianic light, the spiritual light that governs it, right, that can burn for eight days. It's up to God. It's not up to nature. God determines how long oil burns. You see, 
So because they gave up their lives to defend, you know, their Chochmah, you know, Judaism, which is based on the Messianic light, spirituality and so on, they were worthy of seeing that. They were worthy of seeing oil that should have burnt one day. How can that oil burn for eight days? Because that's what the Messianic light says. You see, and that's exactly what happened. So we now have a great understanding, you see, of what Hanukkah is. And therefore, the following questions can be answered. What is the essence of Hanukkah? What is it? What is the inner story? And the answer is, well, it looks like it's a story of a war and victory. And that was miraculous. That's true. But the essence of Hanukkah, we now know, is to repair the, messian- the, re- the rejection of the messianic light because of the defect that was caused by the Cheta Eagle, the sin of the golden calf. You see. Second question, what's the connection between Hanukkah and the Menorah? I mean, there were two miracles, that's true. The, the victory is a miracle. And the Menorah, but what does the Menorah have to do with this? You see. We should be celebrating a victory party, so to speak. And the answer is because the menorah is the spiritual achievement of what the Jews did. And that is the essence of Hanukkah. Therefore, a miracle happened in the menorah, and that becomes the major mitzvah of what we have to do. Now, we can also ask another question. Why is this event a holiday? I mean, throughout history, the Jews have always been persecuted and saved. It's happened thousands of times. Uh, so how did the rabbis know what they did? And therefore, why did they make this a holiday? And the answer is that, you know, if the Jews are persecuted and saved, fine. But what happens if the Jews are persecuted and saved, and that leads to a tremendous rectification or repair to a spiritual necessity, which I've mentioned, then that must be a holiday. Because that's a new milestone in Jewish history where the Jews repaired the sin of the golden calf by accepting the messianic light and fighting the Greeks which were anti anti that light. You see, that's why, you see. And we also understand why it says, you know, you're not allowed to use the Hanukkah lights to sit and read with them because they are not there for the lights to give you light to to do you know to read and see no this light represents chokhmah represents wisdom wisdom of the messianic light so therefore you cannot read by them or benefit from them in that way because it's not normal light that you benefit from it represents something else which is the messianic light We also understand why there's no meal. Because what was saved wasn't the body of the Jew. Because the Greeks didn't want to kill the Jews. They just wanted to change their entire outlook of life and their value system. Therefore, what would have been harmed and damaged is the neshama, is the soul of the Jew, you see, would have been severely damaged. Therefore, um, there's no meal because a meal would be if the body was saved. So the body wants to celebrate by having a meal, you see, as a commemoration, a celebration. But it was the soul that was saved. 
because that's what the Greeks threaten. And therefore, there's no real suudah, there's no meal. Rather, you say halal, where the neshama praises God. You see, that's what we understand. But there was something that happened, because the ones who drove out the Greeks were the Hashmanoim. You see, they were the Hashmanoim, uh, which were Kohanim. What they should have done, you see, is they should have conquered the Greeks, which they did, and then reestablished the kingdom, you see. And as a result of that, they should have left the throne. Because the ones who are assigned to be part of, to rule over the Jewish people, is not the Kohanim, you see. It is Judah, the kings of Judah, you see. And that's what they should have done, you see. That's what they should have done, is to leave the kingship, but they didn't. So the Hashemunim remained as kings of Israel, which was a tremendous sin, because it says, and the staff shall not depart from Yehuda, he will be the governing, the king of Israel. But they refused to do that. So ultimately, all the Hashemunim were killed, ultimately. And uh, the last last one who died was a woman. I think her name was Miriam. And Herod, or she committed suicide, not to be married to Herod, and uh, whatever. In any case, uh, so that was the end of the entire dynasty of the Hashmanoim. And the interesting thing about that is that answers another question. Because Hanukkah, as we now realize, was a messianic opportunity. What does that mean? Is that the, had the Jews accepted what they did and allowed if the Hashemunim would have gotten off the throne and somebody else would have gone on, that could have been a messianic opportunity, you see, where the Mashiach actually would have come. But it didn't happen. So it comes out that the Hashemunim destroyed the opportunity, you see, of the Mashiach to come. Therefore, Rebbe, the one who wrote the Mishnayis and all the Masechtas, you see, he was very angry at what they did. <clears throat> because Rebbe was from Beis Yehuda. And he, was, and he decided, therefore, that he's not going to honor them. How? He's not going to honor the Hashmanoim by writing a Masechta on Hanukkah. That is why there's no Masechta on Hanukkah which is very odd, because there is a Gemara, a tractate, on every single holiday, but there is no tractate on Hanukkah. In other words, the laws of Hanukkah are spread out uh, throughout the Mishnahis, but there's no single Masechta that's devoted or dedicated to them. And the reason for that was because they violated the opportunity, and they destroyed the opportunity to bring the uh, the Gula, <clears throat> you see, the redemption. And therefore that, that gets answered, you see. But what's also interesting <clears throat> is that because the Hashemunim refused to get off the throne, that enabled Rome to grow. I don't know if you know it, but there was a, there's a history re- relates. There was what's called the Punic Wars. Who would dominate the world? 
And at that time, there were two major kingdoms, empires. One was Rome, which we know in Italy, and the other was in Carthage, which is North Africa, you see. And they were another major kingdom. And they fought it out. That's called the Punic Wars. And they fought three wars. In 148 BCE, there was a war again between Rome and Carthage, and Rome was victorious. They destroyed, literally, the entire Carthage. And it would appear that the reason for that uh, is that since the Hashmanoim, uh, Hanukkah, Hanukkah happened in approximately 165 BCE, before the Common Era. And the Third Punic War happened in 148 BCE, which is shortly after, about 15, 16 years later. It would appear, therefore, that because the Hashmanoim didn't get off the throne, and they, which they, and they were not allowed to be on the throne permanently, but they wouldn't get off, not only were they destroyed, but God enabled Rome that would ultimately destroy the Besamikdash to come out and flourish. So it's almost as if the punishment that the Jewish people had or because of the Hashmanoim enabled Rome to win the war against Carthage. Rome, which is really Esau and Edom, and they would ultimately destroy the Beis HaMikdash. So instead of having a messianic opportunity, it is, they did, uh, Rome actually was, won uh, the victory and they destroyed the... Uh, the uh, 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 cottage and so on, which is very interesting historically, and so on. In any case, now there are a lot of very interesting remosum or allusions. For instance, the word or, in the first time it appears in the Torah, right, is God said, let there be light. That word or is the 25th word in the Torah. And we know Hanukkah is on the 25th day of Kislev. Right? That's a very interesting uh, allusion and so on. Uh, a hint at, uh, at Hanukkah. You see the 25th word is or, which is the Menorah. Also, if you look at the travels of the Jews through the desert, the 25th, there were 42 stations, stops. The 25th stop is a place called Hashmaina, which is also very interesting. And again, another interesting idea is, uh, these are like additional ideas that allude to the, what the nature or the essence of Hanukkah is, you see. Uh, one of them is the, the dreidel. Now we know on the dreidel there are five letters, Nun, Gimel, Hey, Shin, which stands for Neskod Lahoyasham, you see. The gematria of Nun, Gimel, Hey, Shin on the dreidel, Hanukkah dreidel, Right, is three, uh, three uh, fifty-eight, I think, which is the exact gematria of Moshiach. Interesting. So, therefore, the gematria of those four letters is the gematria of Moshiach, because that's really the essence of what Hanukkah would have been. You know, it's interesting. There was once uh, I once gave this year, and an Israeli came over to me and he said, "Well, in Israel." It doesn't say Nun Gimel Heshin, Neskod Lhoyasham. It says Neskod Lhoyapo, Pei, because it happened in Israel. That doesn't add up to what you just said. It doesn't add up to Mashiach. You see? That was a very good question. Well, thankfully, God gave me the answer immediately. 
And I said, well, Nun Gimel Heishin adds up to Gematria, the numerical value of 138. And that Gematria is Semach, right? And Semach, right, is the name of the Mashiach Ben Yosef. In fact, when we pray in Shmon Esrei, as Semach Dovid, the offspring of David, that is the Mashiach Ben Yosef, according to the Ari, and so on. So the Gematria of the four letters of uh, Israeli Dvedel, Nun Gimel Hei Pei, also adds up to Mashiach. <clears throat> I found that to be very interesting. In any case, um, so even the Dvedel alludes to, right, the concept of the Mashiach. See, <clears throat> and therefore we see many, many very interesting ideas. In fact, the month after Kislev is Teves. And Teves is the month of Esav, which is destined to destroy the base of Migdash, you see. But Hanukkah precedes that. So therefore, it's almost as if Hanukkah comes first, which is Chofhei Kislev, and it precedes Teves, which is the month of Esav, in order to indicate that uh, Yosef will overthrow Esav. <clears throat> okay, in any case, we now understand many, many things. And it answers many ideas. You see, um, what is really happening in Hanukkah? It's the messianic light. So when you, li- when you light the menorah, look at it. Look at that light. Try to look at that light, if you can, for a half hour. Because that light is not merely the light that is supposed to benefit you by using it. You can't. What it is, it's a symbol or a representation of the messianic light itself that the Jews rectified at that time, you see. So that's the internal idea, the hidden story of Hanukkah, that it is a messianic holiday, Kislev. And listen, hopefully it will be Zoycha, you never know. Maybe God will begin the messianic process, you know, however it begins, before Hanukkah or during Hanukkah because it's an appropriate time, beautiful time, that uh, it can begin and because Hanukkah is the day that the Jews rectified the Messianic light and they accepted it, really giving up their entire life for it. Any questions? When you say... Maybe Hashem will allow the the messianic process to begin. What? When you said when you just said that God willing Hashem will allow the messianic process to begin on Hanukkah or before Hanukkah, whatever. What does that look like? You mean what could it possibly look like? Uh huh. You mean what it could possibly look like? Correct. Um. I think one of the major things that has to transpire is that, as I said last time, Torah has to come out of the Klippa. The problem is, you know, the Messianic light really is Torah, except it's a level of Torah which we do not see, right? What is Torah, really? Torah, really, is a revelation of complete reality. Our problems, we see Torah in terms of halacha. We see what to do in the physical reality, but we have no idea 
what doing a mitzvah has in the spiritual realms at all. We don't see the total reality. In fact, basically, we live in a fog, you know, where it clears up a little in front of us, and then all of a sudden, it clouds over. We live in a fog. We don't see reality, except in a very short distance from us. What the Messianic light is, is a complete removal of that fog, where you see everything, and you can't believe what you're looking at. And what is that? Uh, the messianic light in its essence is Torah. But it's the Torah, right, at a fundamental level. That's all. <coughs> you can learn Torah at different levels. You can learn it at the level of Oni Chomish. You can learn it at the level of Gemara, which is basically the derivation of all the laws. Or you can learn the Torah at the level of Kabbalah, which is an explanation and a description of the entire spiritual universe and the relationship that God has with the entire creation and so on uh, and so that's what it is uh, so therefore Torah has to come out of the Klippa Torah has to come out of its prison you see Torah is now bound it's chained and it's concealed so different levels of Torah are opening up as we see now, in terms of all the swarm coming out and so on, and so many things are being printed, and so on. But the Torah in and of itself has to come out of its dark prison. So I, I believe that that is the essential move that has to happen, and that is the essential beginning of that. And simultaneous with that will also be the release of the Mashiach ben Yosef. Because he's the one who does that. He's the one, apparently, who will begin the, the raising the Torah out of its darkness, and so on. So, those are the two essential ideas that can be started uh, in a certain way in Hanukkah. You see... Do you think that by staring at the light of Hanukkah, of the Hanukkah lights for the 30 minutes that it's able to open up your sechel to the Torah more? Yes. There were many great people where they lit Hanukkah lights and they, would, they wouldn't leave it and walk away. They would sit there, you know, and say, there's a lolo and so on. But they would look at the, those lights for the duration of that night. So after 30 minutes, fine. But they would look at that light and think about the significance of what they were looking at. Many, many great uh, gedolim, uh, many Jews would do that, you see. And that itself uh, will, will create what's called a heshpah, or shefa, or divine influence on you. And we don't know what it could open up in heaven. We don't know that. But there's no question that it can open up great enlightenments and mazel. So what should we do while we're staring at it? Is there certain prayers? Think about you... it. Think about Think it. We shouldn't be praying? You could do that too, yes. You could be saying Talim, yeah. Yes, you could be doing that also. The key is to remain connected to the light. 
not to walk away from it, you see, but to be connected to the light about thinking about it or saying Tillam or uh, singing Zmiris. I mean, there's Zmiris that are associated with lighting the Hanukkah lights, you know, and so on, you know, more sur, you know, however different uh, Zmiris and so on, you know. But the key is, don't walk away from it. Stay connected to that light for 30 minutes. That's what I would say. You see. And I think it would be a great idea to listen to the shir again. You know, during Hanukkah. It will remind you, you know, of the different ideas that go on in Hanukkah itself. You see. So is that why we're supposed to put the candles in the window or the door so other people yeah, can also stare exactly, at them? Exactly, yes. Yeah, obviously, the fact that we have to advertise, publicize this mitzvah show, shows how great it is. You see? I mean, you can do a mitzvah, you do it in your own, and that's it. But the rabbis wanted, wanted us to publicize it so everybody should understand that the light of the menorah is the essence of the Jewish religion because that idea that spirituality is the real reality and that governs the physical is the real concept of Judaism. And the Greeks were the opposite of that where everything is science, it's all physical, it's all nature. Tremendous difference in, uh, the, in the philosophies of both of these, uh, you know, religions and so on, or nations. Okay. Rabbi, Any more questions? Yeah. Once, let's say, God willing, it does happen and, and um, the Torah gets released from the Kripa, this Hanukkah, God willing. Um, like, what is it, what happens afterwards? Like, what it does it go very quickly that like all of a sudden uh, uh, Mashiach is is announced and then like how how quick does it move? Does the peace move that we're actually in Israel all together there? Uh, I believe it'll be very quick. You know, you could see that. You know where you could see that. You could see that by Yosef in Egypt you know he was a prisoner he was gone he was a prisoner for years you know he was kidnapped at 17 and at 30 years he was standing in front of Paray that's 13 years and most of it was in prison but what's interesting is that the Pusik that is the redemption itself where it says and they took him out of the pit because prisons he were, then were on the ground they shaved him, bathed him, and so on. And he stood in front of Parai. The whole redemption took place in one verse. You know? Could you, could you imagine that? 13 years in prison, and the, from, from the, the whole redemption, from being released from prison until standing in front of Parai, and not only standing in front of Parai, but being made the Grand Vizier, happens in one Pasuk. That's the rapidity. Because what's important to remember 
is God wants the redemption. He looks forward to the redemption, so to speak. And you see that from a medrash, which says that God is metzapeh. He looks forward to the redemption, to the end of the darkness, to the end of the nightmare. And now, right now we take a look outside in America and Israel, or all around the world, in Iran and China and Russia and so on. It's a nightmare. Every day is another destruction of civilization, another act that you can't even make this stuff up. That's, that's how much civilization is deteriorating. So God doesn't want that, but it's not only that. God doesn't want his name to be desecrated. When the Jews are in the lowest of the low, when anti-Semitism flourishes, right, we don't realize it's not just us. The Shekhinah suffers. The Shekhinah is sort of, as they say, is in the creeper, suffers in darkness. Because the name of God is desecrated in front of the entire world. That's what's happening. Because everybody knows who the Jews are, and that, that they are in many ways the chosen of God. They all know that. It says that in the Torah. It's not that we chose God, which we did. God chose us, you see. So therefore, it is a desecration of his name. Could you imagine trillions of angels sing praises to God every day, and the only place in the universe or in creation that God is rejected and desecrated is on this planet Earth. So God wants this to end. So therefore, Yosef, in prison, his entire release and appointment as the Grand Vizier happened in one pasuk. That's how quick the redemption will happen. The difficulty isn't the speed of the redemption. The difficulty is to get it started. Look, the Jews were in Egypt for how long? 210 years, right? But once the redemption started with the Makkahs, after justice was satisfied, which I talked about, it was incredible. Less than a year. You see? So what was it? Six months? They will get out. Uh, so when you look, take a look at how long they were in Egypt and compare it to how long it took to get out, it's unbelievable. <clears throat> That's what it is. Because once the redemption is, starts, which means that it's the end of the Golas, then it will go quick. Very quick. You see? But it does take time. Just like it took time to destroy Egypt, it will take time to, in many ways, vanquish and subdue all the evil in this civilization called this world. But it will go quick. You see, it's not going to take centuries. It can happen in a year. You see, it will go fast. The trick is to get the, uh, like I say, the whole messianic process started. Once it starts, it is irrevocable and unstoppable. You see. The key is when does it start? And that's what you have to look forward to. You see. So when do you think it's starting? You're asking me when I think it's going to start? Why not? Yeah. Well, 
hopefully next week. Amen. You know, <laughs> this we'll see. Okay. Anyway, everybody should have a great Hanukkah. You know. Wait. So, Rabbi, did you ever hear of this Rabbi called Alon Anava? He, he thinks that yeah, it's not the Yovel so, sure. year, and Yovel is going to be... He, he says that he thinks that Yovel is going to be in seven years. Maybe. Hey, Renat, how did he base it on what? Renat, you there? He said, yes, mean, go he ahead. Said, I'm he not said, sure how he based it on. He based it on he his He said own. basically because we don't know exactly the, the timing of it. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So he's assuming that the Yovel is the next uh, cycle, not this one. And um, yeah, which means that. it would be it would start. I mean, uh, that contact that will now uh, Shemitah. So Yovel would be in eight years. The beginning of the eighth right. year would be seven right. years again, and then the eighth year would be Yovel. I, I mean, you uh, you remember the Zohar I said. That the Zohar yes. says that the Tchis uh, Mason resurrection of the dead, will happen 210 years before the end of time or the end of this world. So if this world ends in 2240, then 210 years before that, which is the resurrection of the dead, which is Mashiach ben David, that will be 2030, right? Right. So we are almost by 2022. Add eight years, and that is 2030. Timing is right. Could be. But Yovel is a complete redemption. I'm talking about the beginning of the redemption. And that so, is the so key. I have a question. The Yovel is when Mashiach and David come, correct? Correct. So, so but we're really, we're, I mean, so... Technically, what he said could still be true because it's for Mashiach and David, but we're right now looking for Mashiach and Yosef. Yes. Yeah. But Nobody he's really saying knows. that during those eight years, it's going to be, like, very bad for the Jews. It's gonna, there's a lot well, it's of... Well, it's going to be a lot of, yeah, a lot of uh, different, uh, you know, uh, difficulties, a lot of difficulties. But simultaneous with the difficulties will be the redemption. You see, it could be simultaneous. You know, it's while things are heating up, so to speak. At the same time, you know, the whoever the Mashiach ben Yosef is has been released, and he is now doing what he does. See, and the main thing is he affiliated with is the Torah, spreading it. So we could still be going through all those, like he was talking about famines, like like and and real like war and a lot of deaths and all these types of things. And so, if we're anticipating the Mashiach and Ben Yosef, isn't it to 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 to, to redeem us from all that? Hello. Rabbi, are you there? I hear you. I heard I heard the noise that went. Yeah, I think he got disconnected. Yeah. 
Should we wait? Right, I, think he, I think he maybe his phone died. Oh, you're, you're probably yeah. right. Oh, he's back, I think. Hello? Hello, Rabbi. Yeah, where'd you go? Yeah, what happened? We got disconnected. Yeah, you got disconnected. So. Okay, my, anyway. My last question was... Anything else? Yeah, my last question was, so if, if there's going to be so much um, hardship during the time of the redemption... Yeah. Isn't the whole point, because the, they were saying like a lot of death in the Jews and, and famine and, and, and a lot of hardship, and it was, it was actually very depressing to hear, to be honest with you. <clears throat> and, and, but, but isn't the whole point when Mashiach ben Yosef comes is to redeem us from all that? Like, when you speak about it, it's about excitement and, and we can't wait for Mashiach to come, but like, is the reality not really that exciting? I mean, it's exciting. Well, let me explain something very important. Mashiach ben Yosef, according to the Gemara, is supposed to die. But that has been changed. Uh, it has been changed. The Zohar says that he will not die. Even the go, the Pesach and the Navi says that he will die. It talks about a great funeral. Why? Because God can change, not stop or cancel, but he can change the way it's supposed to happen. So I once mentioned that what he does is he brings back the Mashiach ben Yosef incarnation, reincarnation, many times. And at each time, the, the, whoever is going to be the Mashiach ben Yosef suffers. So if he added them all up, uh, it would kill him. But since it happens over many lifetimes, he survives. I believe that the Holocaust, in many ways, included a great deal of the suffering of the Jews, right, before the Mashiach ben Yosef comes. In other words, that's why the Holocaust was so brutal. It was brutal because it included a great deal of the xera, or the darkness, and the trials, the difficulties, that happen after the Mashiach ben Yosef comes. So it's not really as bad as you think. Words, even if there's a decree that it has to happen because it's related to the sins of the Jews over the thousands of years, okay. But God can include, he can what's called bundle up punishments, you see, in one time as opposed to, uh, you know, having it in its proper time. It's up to God. And I believe that the Holocaust, which was one of the greatest, not only tragedies, but the brutality of the Holocaust, is beyond belief. The absolute brutality, like I say, it's just, it's hard to comprehend what happened to the Jews, just from a humanistic standpoint. And I believe the reason why it did, you see, is because what God did is he bundled up all the Asurin that the Jews have to have in the Messianic before the Messianic era of David, but in the time of Mashiach ben Yosef. Because that's really what he did. You see? So, as a result of that, it has become much lighter. You see? There's a tremendous amount of softening. It's called Hamtaka Sadinam of what will happen to the Jews once the Mashiach ben Yosef is released. 
That's an important principle. See, that God could bundle up, and He does that many times, you know, for people to help them so they don't have to go through, you know, a severe form of suffering. And I believe that's what, that's what happened. That's why there will be shakeups. I mean, you know, and so on. But nothing near what would have been had the Holocaust not happened. You see. And, and that's a very important concept. So I believe that is exactly what happened. The Holocaust was a bundling up of many, many different tekufas, many, many different times of suffering and severity of the Jews. And it was accomplished or it was satisfied with the Holocaust. And therefore, in no way were we experiencing anywhere near what could have happened in the end of time. You see, so even the war of Goig and Mogoig, which will happen in a certain way, will no will not in any way be as severe as it could have been because a great deal of it already was uh, fulfilled or satisfied in the Holocaust, you see. So that's why this Holocaust was so central to the Jewish people because it was God bundling up all the Yisurin or like 90% of the Yisurin that the Jews went through. Because God is not going to do that to the Jews again. He's not going to, uh, what do you call it, subject the Jewish people to the horrors of a Holocaust again. You see, he will protect the Jews because all of that suffering has been satisfied already. So I would not worry about this. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, thank you. Yes. So it's, it will not be anywhere near. There's what's called mitigation. It's all been softened. The Hamtaka Sadinam. You know. You see. Because look, that's what the Pasuk says. It says, Berega Kotna Zavtich. For one rega, for one second, whatever, minute. Uh, you know, Berega Kotna Zavtich. For one minute, I will abandon you. But in exceedingly great mercy, I will gather you. And that is accomplished at the same time that justice is satisfied because God has now applied whatever the decree was, whatever the sins of the Jews was, He has applied that to another time by bundling it, bundling it up with the actual Holocaust itself. That's a very important principle. God does that all the time, you see. And I certainly believe he has done that now. So when Mashiach ben Yosef finally is released, I believe it will be with tremendous amount of mercy. Rachamim.